Good morning, everyone. Um, to our regulars, it's good to be back after a week on uh, some annual leave. If I've not met you before, my name is Chad. I'm the pastor of the congregation. Please feel free to come up and introduce yourself after the service, and I'd love to tell you more about our church. Um, Rolf has already given us a great sort of historical background to our new series, and I need, need to say from the very beginning that um, having been raised in America, Isaiah is in my head. This is one of those tomato-tomato things. Um, I didn't know there was an Isaiah, uh, uh, you know, an Isaiah until I came to Australia. Neither name sounds anything like the Hebrew name, so just pick your own, but, uh, but Isaiah is in my head. So we're starting um, this new series, and I was reflecting back uh, many years ago when I would have done a Bible study, for example, on a, a book like Isaiah, and I would have introduced it the way that Rolf did for us, kind of given this historical background. And there was this young woman in one of my Bible studies whose name was Kylie. And after I said all of these things, you know, these very interesting things about the background, she would say, so what? And so what became known as the Kylie question. Um, we always knew we had to answer the Kylie question. And her so what wasn't a disrespectful so what. She'd say, okay, you've told me all about the background and the history of all of this, but what I want to know is, what does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with us? Why should I give you my attention? What do you want me to learn? What do you want me to change about my life? And once you could explain that to her, then she was on board, boots and all. But you always had to begin by answering the Kylie question. So I want to give you three quick responses to the so what Kylie question. At least three reasons why this is relevant to us today. First of all, we just finished a, do uh, a series on eight doctrines. And we looked at things like God is creator and God is judge and the problem of sin and the final judgment of the world and the salvation through Jesus. And one of the dangers of doctrines is that they can just become a list of things that we believe, sort of these concepts that you can find in a filing cabinet or on our website. But we don't understand that they have real application to our lives. So the first reason why this is important is that all of these doctrines we've been learning about, now we have a chance to see them played out in real life. I mean, sure, this happened years ago, but I can assure you the, the nature of the world hasn't changed, the nature of humanity hasn't changed, the problem of sin hasn't changed, we still serve the same God, so we have a chance to see how all of these things play out, and in fact, in this very first chapter, you will see God is creator, God is father, God is judge, salvation um, being introduced through Jesus, although not by name yet, the problem of sin, and all of these things, we see them being played out in real time. Second of all, Isaiah is sometimes called the gospel of the Old Testament. In other words, if someone said, you have to present the gospel, the good news to someone, but only using the Old Testament, and you can only use one book, Isaiah is your go-to book. Um, already in chapter 1, you heard, you know, though your sins are red like blood or like crimson, they shall be white as snow. Um, you know, the old Colin Buchanan song, Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray, we've all turned to our own way, but the Lord has laid on him, who is this him? The iniquity of us all. 
uh, when Jesus came to proclaim the good news for the first time and he stood up in the synagogue and he said, the spirit of the Lord is on me and he has called me to proclaim good news. He's called me to proclaim the gospel. He was quoting from Isaiah. Isaiah is the gospel of the Old Testament. Many of the New Testament writers used Isaiah's um, teaching to present the gospel. So we will understand more of the gospel if we understand Isaiah. And finally, um, if you want to know who is Israel in the book of Isaiah, Israel is the people of God. That means Israel is the church. I came from the United States, and because the United States is supposed to be a Christian nation, they often confuse who is being spoken to when the people of God are being spoken to. They often think, well, this is about the United States, and the truth is it's actually about God's people, the church. So this book has a message for us as the church, as God's people. And that term that we sometimes sing about or hear about, the refiner's fire, that also comes from the book of Isaiah. In other words, if you were someone who works with metals and you were trying to strengthen a metal like iron, you put it through the furnace and you burn out the impurities that will weaken it. If you work with precious metals like gold or silver and you need to get rid of the impurities, you take it through a fire. And this book of Isaiah has a fire in it from one end of the other. And it's going to do two things. First of all, it's going to separate the pure from the impure the strong from the weak, the things of God from the things that are not from God. And everyone's going to have to go through the fire, those who trust in God and those who don't. But this book is a refiner's fire. It speaks to the people of God, and it's going to challenge us, not just to rely on the fact that we call ourselves Christians or that we go to church, but to examine our hearts and our minds and our actions and our attitudes to make sure that they are in line with our holy God. So that's why we're going to be doing the book, and we're going to jump straight in. And you've already heard the, you know, the uh, verse 1-1 introduced to us that this was written during this time of these these four Judean kings that most of you probably never heard of or, even, or, or know very little about. But God begins by making an announcement. He, he's speaking uh, specifically not only to, to Israel, but particularly to, to Judah, because you can see on those maps that Ralph put up, that's kind of all that's left. Jerusalem is there as God's holy city, and in many ways they're the last part of Israel still standing. And God has a charge to bring against them. And as you were watching those, those maps with these foreign powers creeping in and surrounding the city, what we need to understand is that explained things politically and geographically. But God's charge was the world had already crept into the walls of Jerusalem. Worldliness had already entered into the holy city. You know, the the, the armies may have been kept out for a time, but the immorality and the paganism and the worldliness and the sin had already entered into Israel. And so God begins by making the first charge against his own people. And he says from verse 2, Hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they rebelled against me. The ox knows its master. The donkey 
its own manger, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. Can you imagine getting a, uh, a notice in the mail or by email saying, um, bad news, uh, some people have brought a charge against you and you are being summoned to court to answer these charges? And you're thinking, well, who are these people? You know, what have I done wrong that, that these people have a charge against me? I, I want to see what, what, what's the name on the notice. And you look down and you say, well, there's three witnesses, God and heaven and earth. Okay, everything is just ramped up to the power of ten. God is the one who's bringing his charge against his people, and he's called heaven and earth as his witnesses. God as creator, and God as the one who formed Israel, brought her into existence, now calls heaven and earth, because this is not just a one-lifetime charge. Isaiah himself will be called as a witness, but Isaiah lived only about the same amount of time that the average person today would live, you know, maybe 80-some years. But God has been forming Israel right back from the time of Abraham, you know, and we've gone through all the wilderness wanderings of, of numbers, and now we're fast-forwarding to the end of Israel as it was currently known. And so God doesn't just call on the sky and the clouds and the dirt, but he says, I'm going to need the witnesses of heaven and earth. You know, the angels in heaven who can watch and see the way I have treated Israel and the way that Israel has treated me over many generations. And I will call upon the people of the earth who have watched what has happened over all of this time, and they will be my witnesses. And the charge is, um, for those of you who remember when we, we talked about Balaam's donkey, and we said that the reason that Balaam's donkey is kind of a funny story because we, we understand the idea of a dumb ass. Donkeys are known to be stubborn and silly creatures. And if you talk about someone who is as stubborn or as dumb as an ox, well, those two animals, those properties, those characteristics of animals were the same back in those days. And God says, even an ox knows the hand who feeds it. Even the donkey knows the manger where it lives. As stubborn as they might be, they will wander back home when it's feeding time or when they need shelter. But he says, my people are, are more silly and more stubborn than a donkey or an ox. In other words, they've forgotten me. They call themselves the people of God. They call themselves the holy city. In name, they appear to be mine but in practicality, they have forgotten who I am. They've forgotten me altogether. So that is the opening charge, and it's delivered by God himself. And then we go down to verse 4, and Isaiah begins to speak also as a witness. Woe to the sinful nation, speaking to Israel, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption, they have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or um, soothed with olive oil. 
you begin to hear some of the specific charges that Isaiah is bringing against them. And he's, in a sense, saying, again, if you can remember Rolf's maps that he had up there, you're watching what is happening politically all around them, and especially that Assyrian Empire who is encroaching more and more and surrounding them and all of that. Well, that, that's more than a political map. God says in this case it's also a spiritual map. In other words, take a look at what God is doing around you. Remember the promises that he made you, that he was going to defeat all of your enemies, that he was going to give you peace. Jerusalem means, you know, the city of peace. Now look around. Look at your circumstances. It's time to think about what is going on. When you start getting a fever and not feeling well, it's time to go to the doctor. What, what's happening? You know, when other problems occur, what is the root of the problem? Well, in this case, Isaiah says, look at what God is doing. This refiner's fire, God is bringing judgment upon you. This is not just politics and wars and the geography of the land is changing. This is God bringing his judgment against you because you have forsaken him. Back in the day, you know, the people still used um, corporal punishment. You know, you could still be beaten for your crimes. And when they would go to whip someone, well, they would, in Israel at least, there were rules and regulations that governed this. You know, you weren't allowed to just beat someone to death. So you would find a fresh spot on the back and you would deliver so many stripes, but there was a limit because you didn't want to just kill the person or rip them open completely. And if they were really rebellious, then you would go and take their shirt off again and then you would find another fresh spot and you would have to do that again. Well, the imagery that Isaiah is giving here is there's no place to beat you anymore. When, when you looked at that last map, you know, they're completely surrounded by surrounding armors. He's saying that there's nothing more to do. I have punished you as much as I can do without utterly destroying you. From verse 7, your country is desolate, your cities burn with fire, your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. Daughter Zion, Jerusalem, is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have become like Gomorrah. During our series on, uh, on the, the doctrines of heaven and hell, about judgment, we, we showed how Sodom and Gomorrah were used as early Old Testament pictures of hell because those cities had become so evil and so corrupt, God rain down sulfur and fire on them and completely destroy them. Even today, a lot of the archaeologists um, believe that the Dead Sea area, you know, where you could float on top of the water because how salty it is and there's just nothing but deadness all around, that that's where Sodom and Gomorrah used to be. To this very day, it is this dead and desolate area. You can't, nothing grows there. There's no city there. It was utterly wiped out. In other words, Isaiah is saying, unless God had shown you some mercy, you would have been utterly destroyed. You only exist as this tiny little hut in the great field of melons because God has shown grace to you. 
But then he opens his mouth again, and he says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Isaiah's not speaking to Sodom and Gomorrah. They're gone. <laughs> Remember, he's just said, you would have become like them. Now he's saying, you are them. The same sin, the same evil that provoked God to send destruction upon Sodom and Gomorrah now exists within the holy city. In other words, if God doesn't punish you, he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Or how can God, being a just God, treat these people in this way and then totally ignore the way that you are acting? You need to repent. Sodom and Gomorrah were warned that it was time of their destruction. You were being warned. This is it, the final warning. It's time to hear and repent. And the next verses, I think, are so striking because Isaiah condemns um, Israel politically because they have trusted in all kinds of political alliances for their strength. They have become corrupt morally. They have, been cor they have become corrupt socially. But God's main charge seems to be that their religion has even become corrupt. Let me read to you again the things that he has to say. From verse 11, The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come and appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? You coming into the temple to worship, you're just trampling my holy courts. Stop bringing your meaningless offerings. Your incense, the thing was burned as an act of worship and prayer, they become detestable to me. I hate the smell of them. Your new moon, Sabbaths, and convocations, your holidays, your holy days, I can't bear these worthless assemblies. Stop coming and giving me meaningless, worthless worship. I can't stand it anymore. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate them with all my being. They have become a burden to me. Do I have to bear one more day of these godless people coming to give their worthless worship? I can't stand it anymore. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. That's a very striking thing to be saying, isn't it? But we need to understand, as Christians living what is in what is considered a Christian nation, where still 50% of the people will tick on their census, I am a Christian, but then think, well, how do I define that? Well, my ancestors were Catholic or Anglican, so I guess I am. Or... We tend, uh, attend a service on Christmas and Easter, therefore I must be a Christian. Or I try to get to church every so often. Or I walk through the doors of a church every single Sunday, so therefore I must be a Christian. But God is defining things completely differently. He said, if you want to call yourself a child of God, act like a child of God. If you say that you worship the Holy One, well then live holy lives. The fact that we all gather in this building together every Sunday means nothing 
if we're not bringing our hearts and minds before God. The fact that we gather in home groups or in this building on a Sunday means nothing if we don't go out and live holy lives. The fact that we have Bible readings and hear sermons and do Bible studies means nothing if it's not transforming our hearts and minds. The fact that we call ourselves Christians means nothing if we don't trust in Jesus, confess our sins, and seek to follow Jesus. It's just a name. It's just a building. And that's what God was saying. Jerusalem is just a city with walls around it and a temple in the middle of it where people butcher animals and they burn them as if I needed food. <laughs> and, and then he goes on to say, what I want is right actions. So from verse 16, so wash and make yourself clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let's settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. I don't know if you, as a parent, has ever had one of those situations where you're kids have provoked you so they've just pushed you and pushed you and you've warned them and you've warned them and you kind of have your trump card like this i'm getting ready to take something away that you don't want me to take away or i'm going to ground you or deny you the being able to go to this special event or this special thing and you're so angry and you kind of look at them and you say i dare you just provoke me and you're almost kind of hoping you know, just, just go ahead, say one more word back to me. Because what I really want is just to deliver my full wrath. And I want to admit, as parents, you can get like that sometimes. It comes down to an issue of pride, and I'm angry, and I just want to deliver the full force of my anger, let you feel the full wrath of my judgment. Here, God says, it's time to settle the matter. Okay, we're going to settle this once and for all. And then what are the next words out of his mouth? Not provoke me a little bit further. Come on, I dare you. Let's settle the matter. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. I want to settle the matter. What do I want from you? Please seek forgiveness. Please confess your sins. This image of God who is an angry judge and who is just waiting to pour out his wrath on the earth is not the picture of the God of the Bible. He will judge, and we will see that in a moment. But he doesn't take delight in judging anyone, but wants all to repent and to receive mercy. And that's where he is now. It's I've gone as far as I'm going to go. It's time to settle the matter. But what do I want for you? I want you to seek forgiveness. And here we get one of the very first indications. He doesn't say, I'll do, I'm happy just to forget the whole thing. I'm happy to say, I don't, I'm not worried about it. We'll just forget the whole thing. No, he says, I have a way. I have a plan. I can forgive your sins and make them as white as snow. And that plan of salvation is going to unfold throughout the entire book. Just as our final 
Um, sort of epilogue to the story um, from verse 19, he says, if you were willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land, but if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. I'm going to give you just a little warning if you decide to study the book of Isaiah or on your own or with a Bible study group. It'll get really confusing because it's not a book that you can read chronologically because it just goes back and forth from blessing and promise and salvation and judgment. Blessing, judgment, blessing, judgment. Over and over and over again. And one stage you'll go, oh, I thought he just forgave them. Oh, no, now we're back to judgment again. And by the time you get to the end of the book, you're going, I get it. If they do the right thing, God's going to bless them. If they turn away from him, he's going to judge them. And that's exactly right. Right back to the beginning of Genesis. There's a tree of life and blessing and a tree of knowledge of good and evil. Back in the days of Moses, when he delivered the law, he stood on one mountain and read out the blessings, and on the other mountain and read out the curses. In the book of Isaiah, from chapter 1 to chapter 66, it is blessing, curse, blessing, curse. When Jesus turns up, he talks about the new Jerusalem and gathering his children together or being thrown out where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. The book of Isaiah is there to say, this is the refiner's fire. And God wants to speak to our hearts and to our minds. He wants us to consider the way we live, the things we believe, and he wants to call us to repentance. I'm going to leave just a moment for silent prayer and reflection, and then I'm going to say a prayer of confession um, on behalf of us as a congregation. If you agree in the end, you can say amen. But I'm just going to allow a moment of silent prayer. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We've not loved our neighbor as ourselves. And we are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. We're going to sing our song of response.